almost any newspaper on almost any day contains stories concerning accusations against people in public life. A few months ago, the Home Secretary, David Blunkett, was in the news accused of fast-tracking a visa application for his ex-lover's nanny, which eventually cost him his job. This week in Scottish politics, it's been the third of the Justice Minister, Cathy Jamieson, accused of giving money to her nephew while he was on the run from the police, a charge she strenuously denies, backed by the First Minister. But such kinds of accusations are not limited to those in public life. Any one of us can be the victim of accusations and of false accusations. An unpleasant experience, especially if it happens behind our backs. And a difficult situation is made even worse if you yourself are going through tough times and can't easily defend yourself. We call it kicking a man when he's down. But there's something even worse if you're a Christian. And that is when such attacks and criticisms come from fellow Christians. Now you may think, especially if you're a new Christian, that such things couldn't possibly happen. Or if they do, the people who indulge in such tactics couldn't really be genuine Christians. But you're wrong. Such things do happen and did happen in New Testament times. And this we discover this morning as we continue our series in the little letter to the Philippians in the New Testament which we've entitled Shining Like Stars. This letter was written by Paul, an apostle or special messenger of Jesus Christ, almost certainly from the city of Rome, where he had arrived as a prisoner and where he remained in chains, awaiting trial before Caesar because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And when he arrived in Rome, Paul discovered that there were Christians there who were motivated by love and rallied round and stood by him. But he also discovered there were other Christians who were motivated by selfish ambition and did their best to stir up trouble for him. So look with me at these mixed motives. We'll help to have a Bible in front of you. We're going to read these verses. Philippians 1, verses 15 to 18. It's page 1178. There are Bibles in the pews. If you can't see one, ask someone to pass one to you. We'll read together. In fact, let's read from verse 12 to get the context. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ 
out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now let's look a little bit at the background and then I want to come to the application for us. So just try and stay with me if you would. Paul here talks about two different kinds of Christians. Two groups of Christians. In the NIV application commentary, which I recommend to you by someone called Frank Thielman, there's a helpful chart which contrasts the characteristics of these two groups. Let's just look at them for a moment together. He calls them Paul's friends and Paul's rivals. And the first and most important thing to notice is that both of these groups are people who he says preach Christ. Some people have tried to show that these rivals here are not really genuine Christians. That they're preaching another message other than the true gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Uh, Some suggest they were people from a Jewish background who were upset with Paul's emphasis on the fact that you didn't need to become a Jew first if you were a Gentile to follow Jesus Christ. And so they got it in for Paul. Others suggest there were those who preached what we might call today a prosperity, health and wealth gospel, and who said Paul couldn't possibly be a genuine apostle, otherwise he wouldn't be in prison. Now, such people were around. We discover from other letters written by Paul, and he addresses those issues head on. And in fact, later in Philippians, if you've got the Bible open, turn over to chapter 3, you will see that he denounces those who preach a false gospel. Philippians 3 verse 2 watch out for those dogs he calls them those men who do evil those mutilators of the flesh for it is we who are the circumcision we who worship by the spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus and have put no confidence in the flesh now notice here it's a case of them what he calls these dogs which is a derogatory term wasn't against dog lovers but that was the term they used in those days and us we who preach the true gospel the circumcision but those Paul refers to back in Philippians chapter 1 are not in that category for they also preach Christ look what he says again at verse 15 it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill both groups of people were those who preached Christ the word preached or proclaimed is that use of a herald announcing good news, blowing a trumpet. If you had listened to either of them, their messages would have contained the good news that Jesus came to earth, God's Son died, He rose again, He's now Lord of all, one day He will return. They both preached the Gospel. However, while Paul's friends and rivals may preach the same message, they have very different motives for doing so. Look what he says. Paul's friends preach Christ out of goodwill, while his rivals preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Can you see the different motivations? His friends were motivated by what he calls goodwill. The word goodwill can mean the goodwill of other people. In other words, these Christians in Rome 
were interested in the welfare and the goodwill of Paul. However, though this was true, the word probably here has a different meaning. Not just goodwill to men, but goodwill towards God. Preaching in such a way as to obtain his favour and pleasure. In fact, Paul uses the same word in chapter 2. If you've got the Bible open there, he urges the Christians in verse 14 to work out their salvation with fear and trembling because, why? It is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose his goodwill. So another writer on Philippians, an excellent book, although it costs £40, I'll loan you my copy if you want to borrow it sometime. Uh, Peter O'Brien says, appreciative of that divine approval which rested on Paul's ministry, prisoner though he was, they took up the task of proclaiming Christ. Now, in contrast, Paul's rivals preached the gospel out of envy and rivalry. Now, the related word jealousy is the desire to have something that someone else doesn't have envy is just purely negative it's a concern to deprive someone of something you desire rather than necessarily gaining it it's the word used of the Jewish religious leaders you remember when they brought Jesus to Pilate and asked Pilate to sentence him to death Pilate very astute politician as he was recognized their motives Matthew 27:18. For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. And this same base desire motivated Paul's rivals in Rome. Envious of his success, they seized the opportunity which Paul's imprisonment afforded them to promote their own credentials out of envy and rivalry. The word rivalry is also a, a very negative word. It's to do with strife contention, discord. It's a word used of people who are always on the lookout for a good argument or a good fight with other people. Now you may say Christians aren't like that. If you've not been in the church very long, you may still believe that. Sadly, it is not always the case. These are the kind of people who preach Christ but they also preach against every other group and every other person, which is usually every other person and every other group, that doesn't exactly agree with them on everything. And such people are around in the first century, they're around in the 21st century. There's a way to spot them. Listen to what they preach and notice how much time they spend attacking other people. In the Bible speaks today commentary on Philippians, an excellent commentary as well, and much cheaper than the one I mentioned previously. Alec Mateer writes, the most regrettable aspects of sectarianism and denominationalism have always established their own identity and security by rebutting others and giving rein to the same spirit of envy, rivalry and partisanship which Paul noted. So Paul draws this contrast between his friends and his rivals in verses 16 and 17. He writes that his friends preach Christ out of goodwill, in love, notice what he says, knowing that he is in prison for the defense of the gospel. What he says in verse 16, he says, the latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul's friends are impelled, they're motivated by love. That's that supernatural love of Christ which is poured into the hearts of those who put their faith in Jesus. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. 
and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He's given us. And it's this Christ-like love which should be the motive in all our relationships as Christians. Jesus said it would be the distinguishing mark of Christians. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So these friends of Paul knew that his imprisonment was no accident, let alone a sign of failure or God's displeasure. Rather, they recognized that God's good plan is to use Paul and his imprisonment to encourage many other Christians, verse 14, to speak the word of God more fearlessly and boldly, courageously. And they know that God has put Paul there in the palace for the defense of the gospel. That's a very interesting word in verse 16, the word put. It's a military word used of a commission. If you get called up into the army and you were sent somewhere, you were put there. And the sense behind this is that God is sovereign in Paul's life and he's commissioned him to go to Rome and preach the gospel in the palace in chains. Gordon Fee comments, Thus these friends among the Roman house churches see their role as filling the gap with regard to evangelism for a wounded comrade in arms, as it were, who has been divinely appointed to defend the gospel at the highest levels of the empire. Now, in contrast, Paul's rivals don't know such a thing. They imagine, he says, they suppose that Paul's imprisonment is an opportunity for them to further their own following and stir up trouble for Paul. Look how the two things work out together. Paul's friends preach Christ out of goodwill and love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. His rivals preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Verse 17, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. In contrast to Paul's friends, who were impelled and motivated by God's love, his rivals are motivated by what he calls selfish ambition. It's only one word in the original. And again, it's a very interesting word. Originally, it was a word uh, that was used to pay someone for something, to work for pay. But it came to mean something in the political arena where a person sought pursuit of political office by unfair means. A person who canvassed and politic behind the scenes. Maybe even paid bribes to get their way and to get elected. So Paul's rivals, they think, ah, Paul this apostle is in prison. This gives us an opportunity to further our own cause, to stir up trouble for him. Now, some people think stir up trouble means, you know, they were tell, uh, telling tales to the Roman authorities to make his imprisonment even worse. It's probably unlikely. Probably what it means is here, they wanted to cause Paul inner anxiety and anguish. Again, Peter O'Brien comments helpfully. The meaning is not that they deliberately set themselves to aggravate Paul's sufferings or to cause him physical harm or injury, but rather to stir up some inward annoyance, some trouble of spirit, perhaps by bringing home to him the limitations and restraints of his condition, which they misunderstood, as contrasted with their own unfettered freedom. Now, we're coming to the point, I hope you're still with me, it's been quite hard work just to get through and see what these two groups are, but now we come to the important point. We come in a moment to the application. 
the remarkable thing about this is, facing this kind of situation, Paul, as it were, shrugs his shoulders and says, so what? But what does it matter? Despite the fact that these fellow Christians, these fellow preachers are seeking to malign and discourage him, while seeking to further their own position, Paul shrugs his shoulders and says, so what? doesn't matter. I'm not bothered. Now, that is the background. Now the application for us. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, seeking to serve Him, seeking to make His gospel known to other people, I tell you this, almost without doubt, sometime sooner or later you'll find yourself in the place where Paul found himself probably not literally in chains but in great difficulty and you will find the hardest thing of all is when fellow Christians do not understand but not only that they actually criticize us behind our backs and share their opinions with all and sundry Now, this is especially true for those in Christian ministry, but it should apply for all of us, to all of us. For all of us who are Christians are involved or should be involved in gospel ministry. This is the front line of Christian service. And it will bring you into conflict, not just with those outside the church, which you expect, but with those inside as well. Now, I know as a pastor that some of you have experienced this in the past and you still struggle to come to terms with what happened others are going through it right now and are struggling to come to terms with what is happening in the present and for those of you younger ones who think this is one of those messages that doesn't apply to me but just ask the Holy Spirit to lodge these lessons in your mind as a kind of preparation for when sadly it may happen to you so I want to spend second half the message on this I'm going to spend the second half trying to answer a question how can you say and mean in these circumstances what does it matter so what think of a three legged stool each leg providing support so that you can sit on it comfortably and rest in that assurance alright there are three things that you need at least someone will give me four or five later and we'll have a four leg table or whatever but these are my three alright that I think this passage reveals to us the first most important lesson is this that you need to believe in the sovereignty of God now you may say what does that mean if you've not been around church what does the sovereignty of God mean this is very basic but it means God is in control of everything and that nothing anyone does can thwart his plans. He can even turn bad things to his advantage and our good if we entrust our lives into his hands. That's a long definition, so I'll say it again. It's important. God is in control of everything. Nothing anyone does can thwart his plans. He can turn even bad things to his advantage 
unto our good if we entrust our lives into His hands. Now, if you believe this, then Romans 8.28 is not just a sticker on your bumper or the back windscreen of your car. It is written on your heart. And we, same word, know. Paul says, they know I'm in prison. It's God's plan. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now, example. Here's the best one. The most amazing one. This is supremely true of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the worst thing which happened to the best person and the only truly innocent victim turned out for the greatest good for the human race. So in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter tells the crowd gathered there that they are responsible for the death of Jesus. He says, you did it, but God planned it. You need to hold those two things together. Acts 2.23, he says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You are fully responsible. No excuses. But God is sovereign. And he turned that worst of experiences, the darkest day in human experience, which is why we call it Good Friday. Otherwise, we'd call it Bad Friday. Now, what was true, Jesus, is in a lesser degree, because none of us are truly innocent victims in any situation, but of a lesser degree, it's true of his followers as we seek to follow him. And it's true of the imprisonment of Paul. So while the authorities in Rome have placed Paul in chains for Christ because of his faith in Christ, he says he is put there for the defence of the gospel. If you'd ask the Roman authorities, what's this guy Paul, Saul of Tarsus, doing in prison? They'd say, well, we put him there. We arrested him. And in one sense, that's true. But it was God who put him there. He was under divine orders. Of course, Paul wanted to preach the gospel. He didn't plan it this way. He didn't deliberately get himself arrested thinking, I'll get a free ticket on a boat to Rome to save me a bit of expenses for the Christian community. I'm sure he imagined he'd march into Rome or walk into Rome with his apostolic band and begin to preach the gospel. But no, he was arrested. What did he say? Oh dear! All my plans are finished. Woe is me! No, he said, oh well, so what? God's put me here. Amazing, I'm in prison now. And it's turned out for the good of the gospel. Of course, his rivals don't understand this. They think it's all a big mistake. And they're stirring up trouble for Paul while he's in chains. But Paul knows they're wrong. Peter O'Brien again comments helpfully. Paul's response to his fellow believers who have tried to stir up trouble for him shows vividly that he has placed his own circumstances under the authority of God and is convinced that God is using them to accomplish his purpose. Now, the challenge to me, the challenge to you, is whether what is true for the death of Jesus, what was true for the imprisonment of Paul, 
is true for you in your present experience at the moment. Especially if it's a difficult experience, a hard experience, a sad experience, and particularly in this context, if it involves fellow Christians who've done you in as you see it. Is it true for us in our adverse circumstances? Now, unless you've got that conviction about the sovereignty of God, you will never be able to say and mean, so what? What does it matter? That doesn't minimize the pain. It just hurts some people stab you in the back, metaphorically as well. But it means overall that you have a conviction that I know that in all things God is working for the good of me because I am called according to his purpose and he loves me. Otherwise, your life will be the women intentions of other people, especially their bad intentions. You see, God works not merely in spite of, but through adverse circumstances. Now you may say, and some of you have said to me, I know where you're at, but pastor, you don't know what so-and-so did to me. And what a mess it's made of my life. And where I am today. And I appreciate the pain. God appreciates the pain. But I simply ask you, are your enemies more powerful than God? You must have some pretty powerful enemies if they can frustrate God's plan for your life in some way. That's the first leg of the stool, the sovereignty of God. The second is, now I'll deal with this one more quickly, but it's important as well. Secondly, what, I couldn't get the right words here, but the support of godly people. You see, Paul was not alone in his conviction about his experiences and how he interpreted them in the light of the sovereignty of God. It is possible for us to read our circumstances wrong. No matter how mature a Christian you may be, you need the corrective, the guidance, the accountability of fellow Christians. Listen, if you're the only Christian who is convinced about something and everybody else thinks differently, it is extremely unlikely, though not totally impossible, that you're the only soldier who's marching in line. Beware of looking for people that will support you who are marching to a different drum. But if you are right, then there are, there will be, Godly people, motivated by goodwill, those who want to do what pleases God, who will stand with you and support you. Now this was the case with Paul. He contrasts those who preach Christ out of selfish ambition and rivalry and envy with others like him who preach Christ out of good motives, out of love, with a desire to please God rather than further their own selfish agenda the encouragement of fellow Christians who had a shared motivation. And these Christians had a shared conviction with Paul that his imprisonment was part of God's sovereignty, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Now, the Christian life and Christian ministry can be a very dangerous and sometimes a very lonely place. And we need the support of godly people to encourage us and keep us on track and keep us checking out our motives. I met this week, and I think it was 
Yes, it was Thursday. I turned up Wednesday. It was the wrong day, but I came back on Thursday. And on Thursday, I met with a group of fellow ministers, city centre ministers, for a time together to share and to pray together. There were the brethren, two Episcopals, the Church of Scotland. And we shared together what God is doing in our churches. And we prayed for one another. The level of accountability. And we affirm the fact that we are not in competition with other churches in the city centre. This is not a market business. We are not building empires. We are building the church, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I was encouraging. The meet- I was talking, one of them was Dave Richards, the director, I think they called him in the rector of St. Paul's and St. George's. Amazing. We're rejoicing in the fact that we raised £600,000 for Nidri. And Dave said, he wasn't boasting, and I said, how's your building project going? He said, great, it's £4 million and we've raised three so far. Fantastic. I didn't say, wow, that puts us down, you know, and puts our giving in for space. Listen, friends, let's rejoice with P's and G's about what God is doing there. We're sharing together in the work of the gospel. Otherwise, you get into this competition business, this rivalry, the numbers game. You meet almost any, I have to tell you in all honesty, you get almost any group of ministers together, and sooner or later, pretty sooner usually than later is, you get on to how many people come to your church. Count the legs and divide by two, you know. really matter we need to be accountable we need the support of godly people around us thankful to God for the, we're looking at leadership this week and our, and our elders and I'm grateful to God for the elders that he's given us those who support me and the pastoral team as we share together grateful for Colin and Richard who share the ministry of preaching it's not a competition to see who's the best preacher really it is we thank God for one another our different gifts not envy and rivalry. We support one another. Now you need that kind of support when things are getting tough and when other people accuse you of all sorts of other things. You need the accountability of some people who might occasionally say to you, actually, I think they've got a point. And you need to listen to that kind of thing. I simply ask you this morning, do you have such people in your life? Now there is a third reason getting near the end, okay, stay with me. The third leg of the stool on which Paul rested, on which we can rest, when facing attacks from fellow Christians. Not just what he believed about the sovereignty of God, not just what he experienced from the support of godly people, but finally what he desired. Thirdly, the spread of the gospel. Look again at verse 18, in which we see Paul's priority, what he calls the important thing. Verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Paul says, for me, the important thing in all this is, is Christ preached? And if he is, by whatever motives, I rejoice. What is it more important than? Well, it's more important than the motive of the preacher even. Look at the final contrast in the, in the chart we looked at. Paul's pre- friends preach Christ out of goodwill, in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Those are true motives. Paul's rivals preach Christ out of en- selfish envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains, 
false motives. Now, the motive of the preacher is vitally important. I'm not saying it doesn't matter what your motives are. It's not what the scripture is saying. All of us should seek to have true motives and integrity. Although, in all honesty, it's very hard to be absolutely a person of integrity with absolutely pure motives. Because who knows the depths of our own hearts and motives? Be that as it may, the important thing, says Paul, is that Christ is preached. Even if it's by people like these rivals who have false motives. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said some lots of very interesting things. One of his sayings that I found myself repeating constantly over these past two or three years, I don't know why, but it's come to me again and again. Is Spurgeon said, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. Get it? God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. <laughs> Friends, I've met people who've come from churches that I would regard probably as cults who still came to faith through them. Thankfully, they didn't stay in them. But you think, how's that possible? Well, it's possible because God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. I may disagree on certain points with certain Christians, certain churches, but the important thing to me is this. Do they preach Christ? I received an email a couple of months ago from some visitors to our church. Very nice email, thanking me for the service. The gentleman in question said, I was here with my wife, who originally comes from Scotland, and he informed me that he and 50 other people from South Africa are coming to Edinburgh and we're going to plant a church in Edinburgh. Uh, now some of the uh, some of us said to them, that's great, there are all these really needy areas of Edinburgh without any witness. And they said, no, we're planting in the city centre as close to the university as we can get. Now, I have to question, why does Edinburgh need another one of the 380 churches we already have? Especially when there are so many parts of the world with not a single preacher or the gospel. But, what does it matter so long as they preach Christ? And I'm sure there are enough sinners to go around and enough students who are sinners to go around. And the fact that Christ is preached is not only more important than the motive of the preacher, but more important than the reputation of the preacher. Many people have speculated from these verses, what exactly were these people doing to Paul? What, what did they say? What were the details? The answer is, friends, we don't know because Paul didn't tell us. He didn't need to. Because his reputation doesn't matter to him. Only that Christ is preached. Now, can I give you a rule of thumb that I've tried to abide by and I, in all honesty, say that sometimes I've failed? In a situation of conflict within a church, if the name of Christ or the gospel of Christ is under attack, then we must defend his name and his cause. But if it's only my own reputation that is at stake, then I can leave this with God and say, so what? What does it matter? Now this is easier said than done if you've been in a situation like that of Paul. But Paul says, follow my example, chapter 3, verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers. Take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. And in doing so, we are following the example of Jesus. Jesus was totally innocent. 
and yet he allowed himself to be crucified. Chapter 2 is that great hymn that we'll be looking at in a few weeks' time, God willing. The Apostle Peter writes, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now, if he, the innocent victim, could afford to do that, can you and I not afford to leave our reputation and leave the accusations of the people with God, the one who judges justly? Jesus did this so that through his mistreatment, we might live. We do it so that even through what others do to us, if we have this attitude, God will turn it for good so that Christ might be preached, so the gospel is preached, so that people are saved. Then we can say and mean, but what does it matter? So I ask you, can you say this morning, whatever your circumstances may be, I know some, others I have no idea about who you are this morning, can you say, before God, what's it matter? So what? Now this depends on a crucial factor, and I really do finish with this conclusion. The conclusion, Paul says, the important thing is, now I ask you this morning, in your own experience, you fill in the gap in your own life. For you this morning, what would you put there? The most important thing is, My reputation? My future? My church? What is the most important thing to you? Is it your career? Family? Is the most important thing to you this morning that Christ is preached? That people hear the good news about Jesus Christ? And if it happens through your being maligned, Praise God. So what? 